Hollywood actors were Better shake your booties for black girl nerds Better shake your booties for black girl nerds Yeah Better shake your booties for black girl nerds Better shake your booties for black girl nerds Better shake your booties for black girl nerds Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. My name is Jamie and I am your host along with Janine. In this episode, this is our Sundance show. As of right now, Sundance is still kicking off and thriving in Park City, Utah. And every year here at Black Girl Nerds, we do cover the film festival. And in this episode, we bring to you three amazing interviews by three incredible women who are a force to be reckoned with in their respective industries. Two are filmmakers and one is an actor. In our first segment, we bring to you filmmaker Dee Smith. She is the director behind the Sundance documentary, Kokomo City. Kokomo City is about four black transgender sex workers in New York and Georgia. It's a beautiful film. Kokomo City brings black culture and society at large from a vantage point that is vibrating with energy, sex, challenge, and hard-earned wisdom. So we're excited to talk to Dee Smith about her film, Kokomo City. In our second segment, Janine interviews Melissa Bongella. She is the director behind the documentary, Melissa This is a penetrating coming-of-age personal essay on love and what it means to be human in the context of race, and it explores the memories and experiences of Melissa Bongella, who grew up within the apartheid system. So... That is in our second segment hosted by Janine. And finally, in our third segment, we have an actor on board, actor Trevina Springer, who is actually no stranger to Black Girl Nerds. We've talked to her before. She previously starred in the Ms. Marvel TV series, and now she's in the film To Live and Die and Live. The film is about a Hollywood film director who's navigating his way through love and loss and addiction and she plays his younger sister in the role the film is directed by kasim basir and we're really excited to have trevina back to talk to us about her role in the film and that segment is hosted by yours truly as well as the first segment with d smith so sit back relax and enjoy this sundance filled episode of the black girl nerds podcast Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to Black Girl Nerds. We really appreciate you speaking to us about your film, Kokomo City, which is an important, not only an important film, but it's important to tell these kinds of stories. Uh, Very rare do we get to hear stories through the lens of these marginalized communities. And I think that this is such a fascinating story. Um, But number one, hearing your story, I want to start with you because you have a fascinating story. You went from being a Grammy-nominated producer, working for these successful music artists like Lil Wayne and Katy Perry, and then you decided to change your career path and you found yourself sleeping on a friend's couch and you were broke. And how how did that happen? And, and how did you bounce from that? Um, well, actually it wasn't, 
Well, I was forced to do this, to be honest with you, because I was pretty much blackballed, blacklisted from the music industry once I came out as transgender. I mean, I was pretty much at the peak of my career. So I thought, you know, I was on, definitely on the precipice of something greater. And um, when I came out as transgender and I started to physically change my presentation, people just stopped calling. They just stopped working. Mind you, like I have a lot of connections with rappers and singers and just mostly, to be honest with you, black folk. And that um, was my source And when I came out as transgender, people just stopped dealing with me. And, uh, and I tried to, tried to not go under you know, the water and stay afloat. And it's just things just didn't pan out. Music is 22, it's a blessing, but it's all I know. You know, I, I, I uh, so a couple years passed and, you know, things were really bad. I was sleeping on all of my friends' couches, like everyone. And uh, I had an idea to do a documentary and I asked um, someone that I was staying with at the time if he would be interested in buying me a camera and a lens. Um, this is after me asking directors to help me get this, and no one did. They all just pretty much either ignored me or said no. So I bought a camera and just started filming. <laughs> I, I casted girls, you know, one girl led to another and uh, yeah. And and I, I hate to stop us here, but is there a way to get to a place that's a little less windy? Because sure. yeah. Because you're telling such a beautiful story and I don't want it to be compromised because of audio issues. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for telling me. <laughs> I love the background. I really do. But <laughs> the wind is messing us up. <laughs> okay. Um, so, and, and thank you for sharing that. So what, what inspired you uh, to tell this specific story, this subculture of transgender workers um, in this film, Kokomo City? Um, honestly, there were- Transgender sex workers, let me spe specify. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, there are a lot of reasons, unfortunately. Um, one that comes to mind is when I found myself sleeping on a friend's floor via mattress, pallet, whatever you call it. I was like, you know, even though I've never done sex work, I this feels like the next step would be for me to do sex work. After all of my accomplishments, after all of my due paying and uh, reputation in the industry, I found myself understanding why girls uh, have to do sex work. And um, fortunately for me, I. I, you know, kind of navigated around that, but I was also inspired like, gosh, you know, speaking of sex workers, I'd never see them, you know, on a, on a uh, mainstream platform. I never see it. You, you, you know, you always see like the red carpet girls is what I like to call them. And um, you don't see the real girls that are really doing sex work that are not represented. And I was inspired to reach out to them and, you know, tell their, tell their stories because I, like they were ousted, I was ousted, you know, mm -hmm. and I was drawn to kind of create something around that narrative. 
Going back to your story about how, you know, you were blackballed because you came out as transgender, it's shocking to hear that that even happened to you. And I mean, how long ago did that happen? Like, was this recent? Because it just feels like this industry, especially the music industry, is a lot more progressive and liberal than other industries. Well, it should be. I think maybe, you know, there are two industries. There's the music industry and then there's the black music industry. Mm. I'm dealing with black folk and I'm, I'm going to keep it very real in this, in this interview. The, the main source of inspiration for this film were black people, my people, our people, how we traumatize each other, how we're so unforgiving and how we're so caught up in tradition. I mean, when at the end of the day, tradition is just peer pressure from dead people and we just can't let go of these things that stop us from being united. And yes, the transgender sex worker narrative is just a eeny bitty smart, small part of the issue, but it's a part of the issue. It's like, these girls are human, right? We're all human, but we have all these sub little parts of the black community and we're just all over the place. Like if anything goes down, we're not prepared for anything because we're just not unified. And so this, this started really, I started to transition in 2014. And it's, it's, it's hard to kind of think that this happens to me today, but in 2014, it was not a thing. This was, we were just kind of starting the public talk of transgenderism, right? Mm -hmm. That's one thing, the whites doing it, but blacks do not have the same patience or the same level of uh, emotional intelligence. You know, we don't Mm -hmm. support each other emotionally. And, uh, I I think that I had a really good repu- reputation in the industry and uh, they didn't care. The talent, you know, the visions, none of that mattered. It was just, oh, transgender, that word, that was, that was, that was it, you know? So um, yeah, it was, it was tough. It was tough. And I dealt with that for years, mainly because I was, I was embarrassed. Number two, I was embarrassed because I didn't have a backup plan. I was embarrassed. I was also in denial. I was like, no, this isn't happening to me. This is just bad timing or, mm-hmm. you know, maybe this is not the project for this. You know, I try not to take things personal, but it, it, it just got to a point I had to stop making excuses for my people. Right. Women too. It's not just the black men that were probably secretly attracted to me or whatever their issues were with me. But it were black women too that turned their backs on me in the industry. Mm. Wow. Simply because I, I was transitioning. Did you find that through the process of making this film that you were getting more support like under the LGBTQ community through the white LGBTQ community versus the, the black LGBTQ community? Or was there differences there or or maybe just through the black cis community, you were getting less support there? What what differences was happening when you were making this film? In my, ooh, um, hmm. I'm going to be honest with you. If it weren't for white people, this film would have never happened. Mm. A white man bought my camera in the lens. A white man, you know, 
uh, post wise uh, are, are helping me. And I, and everyone that I reached out to were black. Wow. This film, this film is about trans women, but it's not about the transgender community at the end of the day. It's not even about the LGBT community. I didn't do all that is to preach to the choir. This wasn't a film for LGBT people. This is a film for black people and the rest of the world. And it's just a, a prime example of that, that branding, that, that name LGBT and gay and bi. And it's like all these things to just simply divide. They really do because people can't get past just those simple words. Um, and they chop it up to, oh, it's gonna be this or it's gonna be that. And that's why with Kokomo City, I purposely wanted to try a different angle a perspective with, with shooting. Something more entertaining, but still educational, you know. But I, I disappointedly reached out to my own people and they weren't supportive. But that's, that's the perfect example of what Kokomo City stands for. It's like, mm -hmm. why? Yeah. Yeah. Like, I'm not asking you for money. I'm just asking, let's do business. I've never asked people for money. I've always was very independent with the music. I was very blessed. Thank God I never had to do sex work and, um, or compromise my integrity in any sort of way. So asking for help here and there, I just didn't think it was a deal breaker, but no one wanted any parts of it at the time. And then when you blow up, then people's going to be knocking on your door well, and texting I'm you. And... I'm about to number. Because <laughs> it's coming. It is coming. Oh, no, a new number is coming. I know a that's new, right. Get, get that new number. Get ready. Uh-huh. <laughs> what is so striking about this film visually are these beautiful close-ups and uh, the black and white cinematography. And I wanted to know, why did you choose to film it in black and white? It just, it just represents truth, number one. But also there's a significant sophistication to black and white photography, right? It's just, it's deemed as classic. And even though the girls are what we would say hood or real, they're relatable and it's classic. Our dialogue as black people is classic. It is is not less than anyone else's language. Um, we've adapted in this country as black people and that's, that's our language, but I wanted to highlight our culture and not distract, not distract from it. So I wanted it black and white. I love and it. Girls to shine. And I, and I think, I think they definitely shine. It gives this nice film noir quality to it. So I absolutely love the way it looks cinematically. Uh, <laughs> the the stories that are unveiled in this documentary um, are pretty eye-opening and it confirms an open secret about heterosexual men seeking trans women sex workers. So was the goal of this doc to expose that or simply normalize that this is the way it's always been? Yeah, I don't know if it's I don't know if so much if it's a secret. I just think it's something that black people have become accustomed to sweeping under the rug. And we know. We we just know. Mm -hmm. Black women know. 
black black men know, but everyone, this DL thing, I always ask myself, who is who are people hiding from when everyone's doing a lot of the guys, like guys that are DL, their friends are DL too. So why are you guys hiding behind each other's back? It's just weird. But black women are also, I feel like a lot, a lot just don't know, but there are a lot that are just in denial and refuse to believe that, you know, my husband, he wears his pants off his butt and he's tough and he beat, he beat people up and he can't be gay. You know, um, all of his homeboys are straight and they're tough, you know? <laughs> um, I just, I think, I think most black people understand that this is a part of our culture but a lot of us just don't want to accept it. And um, it's everywhere. It's in the church. It's in, the, mm-hmm. it's in, it's in our neighborhoods. It's, just like, it's everywhere. So why are we denying it as opposed to accepting it and being stronger as a race? Exactly. Yeah, I agree. That's why I'm like, just this is this is the way it's always been. I feel like it's always been an open secret. So for you guys to have those conversations and those very candid conversations, just let it be known. Um, so I think it's okay to normalize it um, and not let it be a stigma. Uh, I think that's how people get hurt. Um, it and it was and and speaking of that, it was very horrifying to hear the stories of you know trans women getting killed and and how the survival rates are so rare as a sex worker and knowing that this is a fact and that these risks are involved why do you think that these women continue to do it they have no choice and when i filmed them i thought that i was going to have that aha got you moment and say like well why are you doing this but the truth of the matter is they really don't know anything else they don't and this i almost feel like there's like this template of transgenderism in the black community like you have to you have to kind of go through this thing um initiation to be a sex worker to be a trans woman Mm -hmm. and a lot of girls are not presented with options and it seems like faster it seems easier i need money for boobs i need money for wigs i need money for nails and i you know i gotta pay my rent and it's just like the easiest things to do as opposed to going into a Walmart clocky, as we call it. That's when a trans woman is just starting her transition and everyone knows that she, you know, probably used to present as a man. No one hires trans women like that. It's getting better, I think, in like New York and maybe LA and stuff like that. But mm-hmm. no trans woman that's starting her transition three months in is going to get a job at no one's reception desk or, you know. So the options are very small. Sex work is very accessible. It's easy for the girls to learn the game and and um, they they don't have a choice. It's very sad. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Why is it important to tell these kinds of stories specifically about the trans experience? Well, Number one, it's not normalized. As much as it is on the television and, and we're walking around, it's not normalized. When when people are talking to me and they have to, they're talking loud and boisterous and confident, but then when it comes to the word transgender, they whisper and look around. That's not normalized. And and I don't feel human when people have to whisper the word transgender. I get offended when people whisper the word black. It's like, what's wrong with you? 
say the word black. I'm black and I'm happy about that. So when you say transgender, it just tells me how far we have to go. It's not, it's, it's not normalized. And, um, you know, I'm not going to lie. I forgot your question. <laughs> <laughs> no, just why is it important? Which you just answered it. It needs to be normalized. It, it, yeah. It, it needs to be. It's, it yeah. Needs to be. We're not, we're not going, we're not going anywhere. Like the, the portal. Damn right. <laughs> and we're part of this. We're part of the black community, whether yeah. we want that or not. I think at the end of the day for me, I just want us to, to really be together as a, as a race, you know, right. we won't be perfect, but at least we're together. Right. So this is your first time at Sundance mm -hmm. and uh, we're actually recording this before you arrive. Uh, but what are your plans when you get there? And what are you feeling at this moment as you prepare to give birth to your baby? Mm. Well, <laughs> I I always tell my friends, like, the, the word to describe how I feel, I don't think has been invented yet. It just hasn't been created. Um, obviously, there's a great sense of euphoria and, and gratitude. But I think right now, to be honest with you, I'm just going with the motions, getting all the work done and listening to my team and just following, you know, what I need to do to make this thing happen. But hopefully I get some time emotionally to reflect and take that time. Um, but I'm right now I'm just working. There's so much. We're also in the process of doing a soundtrack, an original soundtrack for the film, which is absolutely gorgeous so far. So my downtime doesn't exist you know when it's not having to do with Kokomo City is it's is music so I think I don't honestly I think the best thing for me is to keep working because this is is moving so I don't I don't want the momentum to slow down I don't think it's going to slow down after this premieres at Sundance I'm just saying uh, I think a lot of people are going to be talking about this film it's beautiful it's brilliant and I wish all the best to you uh, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to Black Girl Nerds. Thank you for this educational and entertaining. I, I was laughing <laughs> watching this film. Why yeah. not? Why not? Why yeah. not? Infotainment yeah. at its best. Um, yes. So thank you, Dee, so much for, for talking to us. And I wish you all the best and, and have fun. Have a great festival. Thank you so much for this interview. Oh, you're welcome. It's a pleasure. Okay. Take care. Bye. Bye. How is your experience at Sundance so far? I know it just started, but it must be super exciting. Extremely, really and truly. It's like, it's it's the cold. I've never been a fan of the cold, but I just think it is so quaint and so beautiful. And I just love the snow. Uh, we were in an Uber yesterday and my, my editor uh, said, oh, look at that loaf of snow on the house. And I was like, yeah, it's very poetic. It's very pretty. And I I feel, I mean, at first it's very intimidating, obviously. Um, it, just the whole thing, even preparing for it is intimidating. It's expensive. It's 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 like a, an extra job. It's like, I feel like we, we needed a producer just for Sundance because it's a lot. Mm -hmm. um, but now that we're here, you know, we're staying in a really lovely place. Um, and I'm not coming to America for a holiday or like to see, I used to have, I used to date an American and I'm not coming to see him or, you know, it's more, I'm, I've done, me and my team have worked really, really hard. And even at the 
border control when we got to Utah you know they were like what's the reason for your time in the country and I was like I'm here to premiere a film at Sundance that I directed and they were like yes you know and so it just it, as soon as we got here like this is the energy this is the vibe it's like on one hand there's the intimidation I'm in awe of everything you know and at the, on the other hand I'm like I belong here yeah. we've put in so much work in in the story and the film and our intentions and we're we're, we're here not only just representing ourselves like but like this morning I was like yeah I'm here with my ancestors and so I'm going to look the part I'm going to sound the part we are here and we're going to just yeah receive you know I'm giving you the glamour (laughs) receiving the glamour (laughs) yeah it's this feels good it's it's um this film was something that I never knew about South Africa, about the trans guy, mm-hmm. knowing, finding out about a suburban community within apartheid took me on, on this other journey outside of the film inspired me to do more research. And the film is so spacious and so it's like a luxury being able to lean into this film with the archival footage, with the music, with the traditions, the spirituality. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, the spirituality weaves through the narrative in such a way that by the end of the film, it, it gives you, it gave me a different perspective on, on race on compassion on what it means the impact of of segregation mm-hmm. and um actually hope for the future and that's a lot to do in two hours <laughs> yeah um and i think it was possible to do that because of the spiritual the 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 spiritual aspect of the film and the ancestors mm-hmm. And it reveals a kind of African spirituality that that Black Americans rarely have access to. We get stereotypical African spirituality. So please tell me how, why it was so important to kind of center African spirituality as you told your story of growing up in the trans guy during apartheid. Mm, mm. I had no choice because that spirituality is something that is just there. Um, in my life, in my everyday, in my history, in my background. And I I used to feel uh, like it's not allowed to be part of this discourse. I used to feel, oh, excuse me, I just want to switch off the WhatsApp on my phone. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> the, I, the WhatsApp thing was done on my computer. No, so no. Um, I used to feel like it's not allowed as part of this discourse on race, like spirituality, uh, philosophy, healing, indigenous knowledge systems. I, I used to feel like I have to politicize myself. I have to have read all the books that are already talking about race in a very particular way. And I always felt there wasn't a place for the way that I was experiencing race, which is, yes, of course, I'm Black in the world. However, I also have a very generous knowledge system that I come from in terms of how it reads the world, how it reads human existence. Mm-hmm. And 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 I found a lot of succor actually in terms of like how the psychic affliction of racism on my mind, on my body, on my spirit, I, I found that I, I there weren't enough books to read to help me 
psychologically like let this thing go there weren't enough programs there weren't enough podcasts like I it wasn't an intellectual thing only like I feel like I overexercise the intellectual muscle and we overexercise the intellectual aspect of this conversation but how does it translate to how it lives in our bodies how does it translate to how it lives in our relatives in our ancestry and how do you transform and heal this thing this because it's a spirit racism right it feels like it's an entity of its own and so how do you neutralize this thing how do you heal it how do you make it go away at another level and so when I had done the reading of the books been on the panels like you know really walked the path in a very particular way and I still wasn't satisfied the, the question was but who am I actually in the middle of the night you know when when all the ways in which I rely on blackness and my feminism and all those things just couldn't satisfy particular things it went back to who am I where do I come from and why did my ancestors believe in these particular things and it was a quiet and private thing also it wasn't an outside thing I wasn't like advertising it because I was scared of like can can race go with spirituality and and what does it mean to make the two come together because my intention was always to heal from my psychic affliction around racism not just to understand it not just to be against it or like be an anti-racist activist or whatever but but really to transform the way my everyday functions and so it was first a private use thing and when I when I really felt that expanding my sense of understanding of what it means to be a human being um what it means to be umtu because the word for human in in my language is umtu and umtu doesn't just mean human or person it's a certain kind of person that understands fundamentally that being a, a human you have this existence in this waking life but you also have ancestors who are coming uh, before you and those who are coming after you and so humanity is like a trifactor almost mm -hmm. and so and so when I began to think about what race means what racism means in that term like what did my ancestors experience what am I experiencing what are my future children or the ones who are coming after going to be experiencing it just widened it and I, I felt like it was yeah including it in the film was truly because I that's that's what I went through and there was a time when I felt like I'm too obsessed with this race thing I'm too, and, and, and in, in a way that, I don't know, I just couldn't let it go. And it's because I was looking for this. I was looking for, um, I don't know, a more indigenous way of looking. And I think that there's a lot of, not solutions, but there's a lot of knowledge inside indigenous knowledge systems in terms of how to deal with the so-called unsolvable problem. You know, how to still look at the truth piercingly while preserving your humanity, while, and I come from a culture that um, at the very core, at the center, the thing that our ancestors did the most, all of us as Africans, is to, is they, they, they were at pains to preserve human relations. So if you look at how societies are, are constructed, families are constructed within the African context, both like in, historically and even to some degree now, the whole thing was about if we if 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 the human if the relationships between these families these uh, different nations these neighbors these communities is fine the rest comes after and what the west did with the colonial um intervention was to destroy that and to turn it around and to pervert it and say the most important thing is to preserve systems humans come second i don't know if i'm being too like 
Are you, do you, you get it? And so, I, I have goosebumps. Yeah. So, so yeah. Then, how, then this knowledge system, all the practices, all the ways that it exists are so that human relations can be preserved. And so my own reading of race was, how do I look at the truth? How do I deal with the truth? Because it's very painful. Like looking at that archive footage was very painful as a black South African. And having to sit with it for two years, there was a refusal. I was like, no, I don't want to look at all these images of these white people doing these things. It's painful because you can really see the detail, the effort, the planning of apartheid. You can really see it like this was our plan. It's not a mistake, you know? This was our intentional plan. And so to watch that, it was really difficult. And the place, the only place that I found can help me watch the next day again and the next day again was when at the end of the day or at the beginning of the day, I would go sit on my mat and, and talk to my ancestors who were fully feeding me with ideas. With I was communing with them. I was sitting and saying, okay, this is the direction I want to go in. And if it was an okay direction, something would happen in a dream which said, okay, you can go with greenlit, you can go that direction, or no, maybe don't go that way. Because I come from a culture that values dreams a lot as a space for symbolism, to a, a site of communication between um, ancestors, the living, and those who are still coming. And, and I was raised to know, oh, okay, when you see dogs in a dream, this is what it means. When you see water, when you see a snake, when you see a cow, when you see a, a lush green tree, when you see coins in a dream, this is what it means. And so the, the 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 tapping into the spirituality wasn't just only something that was helping me physically and mentally and spiritually deal with this creatively that's why the ancestors are in the credits because I'm like oh I was working with these guys in in putting this together and it's not necessarily my ideas and my story and my mission it's uh, it's like this entity, this idea wanted to exist and it found the people that it wanted to, to be co-created through and, and is expressing itself not because of me or my, you know, it's because it has to. It, it, it's because the time has come and it must find expression in, in the world. It's, it's stunning. And on so many different levels, I I'm, don't know where I come from on the African continent. And uh, I, this film called to me because of, of the African spirituality from the source, uh -huh. the ability to, that, that your culture was able to coexist with Christianity uh -huh. in a way that often cultures here demonize, you know, uh, African spirituality and don't have the context of it, or they, even in, in African, Black American culture, we don't have the knowledge. So we'll make African goddess cards and use them without really knowing what, what, the, what the true meanings are, yet we have imprints of what they are. The memory's there. It's there, and I I truly believe that this is how we made it through the slave ships. One this is minute. how we were able. I also reviewed the Nikki Giovanni film. Go see that when you're there. It's on my list. <laughs> and hopefully, you'll all be able to meet and talk because these yeah. two films are dancing with one another. I love it. Um, so it just was hearing you say this, that they were speaking to the ancestors rings true. 
And it's, it was, it was such, it's such, such, such care for your family and yourself, because in this world of anti-racism, it has been, again, making Black people care for white people in their Mm anti-racism. Instead of finding ways to heal ourselves because we are dying, we are dying younger for the ones who are having to deal with. So in this film, as you, as, as you did this, the moment I'm skipping questions because we're kind of going there. So really compelling part of the documentary were the two conversations that you had with your friends who are white women. Mm-hmm. And they, one left me extremely annoyed and wanting you to just kick this person to the curb. <laughs> <laughs> just saw this person and she's lovely oh. um, the other left me feeling like this is a person who is worth being in a relationship and working towards change mm-hmm. what inspired you to share these very intimate and difficult conversations in the way that you did mm. again I had no other alternative um, our intention with this film was to, in, in, you know, as a, as a writer, as an artist, as a storyteller, it's always to not be afraid to face, you know, face yourself, face this history, face history, face the story, face this material and face what's happening behind the scenes. Um, we always knew, Marion and I, we are friends because we, we always talked about race. Um, although when we were younger, we were a lot more naive about things. And when she came on board um, in the film as a producer, we were very intentional about not running away from the power dynamics between us, of her being a white South African and me being a black South African and her being the producer and me being the director and how this dynamic also plays itself out within the film industry. Um, And we took it upon ourselves to say, we're gonna intentionally look at this, not really knowing how extremely difficult it would be, how much it would test our friendship, how much it would test our relationship, and what you see in the film is a, a, a sliver, like a one short moment in many moments where we were negotiating, can we be friends when at the end of the day, you know, when, when you come in with your stuff and I come in with my stuff. And, and that section was also about me as a black person admitting to myself and inviting the audience, especially black audiences to admit in themselves that we don't always have to be an invulnerable. We don't always have to be strong. We don't always have to be like uh, in a defensive and in a, in a mode where we know what we're talking about and you the white woman must shut up and listen to us, etc. That we, I know that there's a time for that. However, that moment is also very much about me being like, how is, how, what are the remnants of racism inside of me? How am I carrying internalized racism inside of myself? And when does it choose to express itself? So the, the thing that inspired that was that because it was happening in real life and it took a long time to negotiate us having this scene in the film because I know that it puts both of us at risk. I know it puts Marion at risk um, in terms of how black people see her, how white people see her. And, and this is why we were like, how do we speak to that with, by, by playing with the image and saying, you know, cinema is about light. It's about, you know, showing people's faces. What does it mean to take away that face 
And what does it mean to, to hold people hostage almost in a way that is like, you're going to listen to what we're saying. And it's not just about her. This is something that happens with white women all over the world. And it's not just about me, because I know a lot of us in our fights, in our fists in the air, our strength, our resilience, all that beauty. I'm interested in like also entering through the door of, but how do I still carry um, fear? That thing came from me being like, I'm scared of white people. There's a good reason to be scared of white people, but, and, and yeah. she's never been violent towards me. She's never hurt me in that way. But psychologically speaking, uh, you know, that whole thing is, is like, because I jumped out of the shower, like, because I was scared to be in trouble with her. I was like, what the fuck? What, what's going on with me? Why am I doing this, being this person that's so intent on understanding and fighting against racism? I, I wanted to, to, have a have people have a reference point for the other side of this conversation and the other side of intimacy of what it what the, so we're all talking about like you know decolonization and anti-racism and it's it's so nice when people are like reading the books and saying the right conversations and ticking diversity boxes and la di da but what does it actually mean to be in a relationship in and the trenches no nope. in the trenches nobody ever shows that Nobody exactly. shows that. And it was, it was true because it's like, she's lovely and, and it's also scary yeah. and you're exhausted because I mean, I don't want to give too much away. So, but you, we are constantly as black women having to care for everyone. Right. And in a moment when you are vulnerable and you're coming out and you're just having your moment to actually have, I was just picturing y'all being exhausted from shooting and doing, and, and it's that, that, edge that never, when we prick that edge with interracial mm -hmm. relationships, in my experience, because I've had several, they mm -hmm. break down because the white person can't stand in, in, in my truth. Exactly. And I am disappointed by that, that, um, I don't even have the word for it as a writer. It's leaving me because I'm, but it's, it's like a, it, it, it's a cut to the heart because it's yes. like, we're one of the good ones. Exactly. It hurts even more. Again. It hurts it even more. On my side. Exactly. So that's why, and I'm glad you did not kick her to the curb. And I'm glad that the conversation was left in a way to make the audience think and, 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 and ruminate on it because what you did was show a way to do beyond the books in through the feelings and the other talk to me about the other person that we that that you yeah. had the, the, the yes. difference between the two yes and, so yeah so marion is like my everyday human being like she's the person that if my battery dies somewhere i'll ask a stranger to use their phone to be like i know marion's trying to get hold of me and I know her number off by heart and she knows mine. And we're like, she's my wife, you know, in terms of the, because we've made, been making this film together, but also we're really good friends. We're just in each other's lives. And the intimacy of our relationship is something I was very interested in, in inviting the audience into. Um, and my neighbor, Bettina, um, is somebody who I, there was a time in my life when I had white friends and everything was that we were young and we were free and it was the new South Africa and everything was great. And then the second I got political, a lot of them stepped away. And I also left the relationships because they weren't willing to go on this journey with me. And Marion is, is the one that stuck with, uh, with a few other people. And Bettina is the first white friend I made as an adult after that. Be and I was like, I'm going to choose to befriend this person because she's kind, she's smart, she's 
we live next door to each other. She's very gentle. And there's something that I'm attracted to in who she is. Um, and yes, we have shared interest in film and poetry, et cetera, et cetera. And we have the same friends. Um, but she was somebody who I also needed to heal that rageful, angry part in me and to believe that we can make friends across difference within this new discourse in South Africa, at least, where we're really looking at these things. And I, yeah, I asked her to become part of, so I asked her and she agreed. She was like, Millie, this is equally important for me and I'm afraid, but I want to do it because it's important. And we both needed to have that conversation because there were things that as growing up black in South Africa and in the world where at some point you're just like, but why are white people like this to us? Why? Why is it consistent? Why do they hate us? Why is, you just go back down to the basics. And befriending Bettina, I could ask those questions in a way that really helped me understand how things were from her perspective. Not in any ways that try to justify, you know, white violence, but speaking to her really made me understand what white pain is in this context, why this thing persists in the way that it does. And I needed that conversation to to be different from the one that I have with Marion because our relationship is also different. It's not that intimate. We don't have that everyday shared thing. Um, and it's a new friendship. And she's also an artist and she's she's doing it through her work. And so our work speaks to each other too. And the things that she says, I feel, are the things that a lot of black people need to hear. Yeah. In order to understand, or not to understand or to accept, but just when I when I heard some of those things, like when I asked her, what is it, when did you first realize you were white? First of all, those are questions that I'm interested in because I'm like, we're always talking about us. Like, why are we always talking about that? I'm not the, you know, in our trauma and that. And I'm like, but what about the other side? When well, did, I love because they're also racialized. People don't ask that. So yeah, that was great. Right. So, and I was interested in her answer. And genuinely, I was curious. Like, I got to a point where I said, you know what? I know this sounds maybe it's like it's dreamy or like naive or whatever, but I want to be objective about this thing because I'm curious about why racism persists and why it, mut it mutates with each generation, you know, and finds a style to form itself into wherever you are in the world. And and so the the the, the difference in the interviews is that she almost speaks, and that's why we show more of her face and more of her work, is that she is saying things that I as a black person really need to hear about why white South Africa is the way that it is or was the way that it was. And to also know that this conversation can happen. Again, it's another reference point for, we can love each other, we can be tender, we can share certain things and we can have this conversation in a way that keeps us both in the relationship. Because that's the other thing, like I had to also create a desire in myself and accept that, yeah, I don't wanna live in a world where I lager myself with only people that look like me or think like me. I do want, I mean, Audre Lorde writes about difference, right? And the fund of difference that we must exploit in order to fight against the bigger systems and not to be afraid of these differences, but to lean into them. And that too was scary, not only for her, but also for me. But I also found it tender and beautiful and helpful, you know, just to know, but oh, okay. It, it wasn't all nice and because you grow up thinking, oh, white people were having it, the best lives and they would, and to know about, no. Actually, apartheid messed up with messed with everybody in different ways. You can't equivocate those ways, but there's a thing called white pain. And 
it's not the opposite of black pain. It's got its, its, its own thing and it causes and influences what black pain is. But it, there's, a, there's another thing going on there. And if I'm interested in, in, in healing from racism or, or I have to be curious about that thing too. Yeah. You know? Yeah. yeah. You're telling me this is our last question. <laughs> um, as you do this, this is soul work and you share so much depth and beauty of your family, of your community, of, of the beauty and the, the not so beautiful things. Um, how do you, with your spiritual practice, offer yourself true care so that you can keep your longevity because we need you. We want you healthy. We want you looking fly in your white outfit that's gorgeous here <laughs> and healthy. How does the your African spiritual practice, which I will definitely be looking into more and leaning into, how does that assist you as you um, share your vulnerability with us as such a gift to, to move us all forward and help us and as we as we um, heal, begin the process of healing and leaning in and learning how to be with one another? Mm, such a good question, you know. Yeah, this has been a complete labor of everything. I have given it everything I have. I have sacrificed so much mm. time, you know, relationships, all kinds of things, because I knew I was working on something that needed truly to, to be so carefully handled and worked on so that it may express itself in the world and do its work. And as I've said, like I didn't walk that road without my ancestors because my first understanding is that I am a spiritual being. And so, and I like nice things too, as a person. <laughs> I'm also bougie as hell. I love nice things. I love a good sheet. I love a good scent. You know what I mean? And I would say to my ancestors, if you really want me to do this work and give it justice, take care of me because yeah. you know what I like. Yeah, I'm not, I don't want to struggle. I don't want to be like <laughs> clamoring for things because then you're not going to get the best brain. You're not going to get the best energy. And so there's also a negotiation about the material in, this, in these conversations. And I'm not saying that, you know, material comforts are the thing that got me through. They're, through. they're not necessarily, but I'm very much looking forward to rest after this because this has been eating dreaming sleeping for the past eight years for me like especially the past four years like I've done nothing else I've said no to jobs I've my life has just I've been in a cave and so I really do this thing that you're talking about being preserved and like care um I mean I've, I've started writing down in my journal the kind of things I'd like to do first I'd like to rest you know and let the film go into the world and do its thing and I want to do very basic things like, you know, cook and like mix spices. Like the other day I went looking for a spice grinder because I'm like, after the film, my reward to myself is like going out and like finding, like finding clothes, like foraging for different spices and mixing it and cooking it for people that I love. And finally having people in my home in a way that, you know, I, I want to nurture my home. I've also haven't really had time. My pictures are all on the floor. Like nothing is really the way that it's supposed to be. So I, I want to learn how to home again. And so, so for that, for the next phase of the film, because right now it's been uphill, you know, trying to make the story, trying to make, make it make sense, etc. And now we're all on a downhill slope that 100% involves 
this idea of first principles, caring about myself, caring about my body. I want to reestablish, you know, relationships with my friends and my families that I couldn't, like I, I miss Christmases. How many Christmases did I miss because I was working and New Year's parties and people's babies and whatever. And like my own life, like I want to find a partner and like make a family because I was like, this is not a priority and I wouldn't be able to do what I'm doing if I had other people to look after. And so there's like a an exchange and I keep a bargain. I'm like negotiating with my ancestors. I'm like, okay, I've done this now. Can 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 you guys send me a person that's going to love me and look after me? And I really want to learn how to engage that part of myself because it's important because relationships, because relationality, like we can't kill ourselves and be productive and put these ideas out when no one is nourishing and rubbing our feet. And like, it's a simple thing. Aren't basic things like somebody who's going to know that in the middle of the night, I wake up and I'm thirsty. So I want someone who's going to put a glass of water there by my bed before I go to sleep. And someone that I'm going to wake up and make a cup of tea for. Small things. It's the, it's the, it's those things that fascism and racism and capitalism says is not important. Says that this is how we fight against fascism is by insisting on intimacy, insisting on it, like mad people, like because that's the that for me, that's the antidote to fascism, right? It separates us, it separates from family, from, and you know, this is an African-American, you know? Mm-hmm. And so what are the mechanisms of rebuilding those things for the self and then for each other and then for the other, you know, in managing those, those kinds of relationships? So like, that's the next, I mean, it's been a practice that I've been doing, but not, it, it's always been like adjacent to the film, but now I really want to be like, looking after myself so that for the next 50 years I can do this knowing that there's a balance I can do this work knowing that yes it's soul work um and it also recognizes that I'm a flesh human you know yes and flesh people like you know we have certain flesh tastes and so (laughs) (laughs) yeah you know and and just to say about that that thing about you know spirituality and and African Americans and African spirituality like you know I think we're invited we're all invited to this thing this is not some a knowledge system that Africans have only and it's ours only I think this was a universal thing I think all human beings this is an inheritance that all of us as human beings have and one of the ma- ma- most exciting things that I want to do is travel this country and deal and talk to the different people that the indigenous groups here the nations the you know the the settlers you know african-americans because there's a pool you know you you said that you know you grew up with people who make goddess cards there's a pool that that says and and all spirituality ultimately is made up you know we make up rituals because we're like there's something that says i must do this thing it's all made up and so what does it mean in the 21st century to use the ancient and mix it with whatever it is, because we are also like mixed, you know? So how do we, yeah, like create a language that can. As we honor and respect one another, you know, and, and we help to nurture one another with, with, with financial abundance without appropriating. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But um, they're going to be very angry at me for taking so much time with you, but thank you. For- thank you. I'm, I'm not angry. <laughs> they were like this is the last question but thank you um i i i look forward to more and i send you nourishing and glamour thank and you so so it's seriously whenever you need a little just this is a little moment of like i'm glamouring. 
good. This is from Jamie. I love this term. <laughs> he can be like this. So, yeah. all right, y'all. Thank, Thank you, you so, much. so much for taking some time out to speak with Black Girl Nurse this afternoon. It is my absolute honor and pleasure and delight. And thank you. (laughs) Thanks for taking the time to speak to us. I am so excited to have on the Black Girl Nerds podcast, actor Trevina Springer. And she's actually no stranger to Black Girl Nerds. We spoke with her before. Uh, She's made an appearance on one of our favorite Marvel shows, Ms. Marvel. So we're going to talk a little bit about that. But Trevina is promoting her latest film called To Live and Die and Live, which is making its premiere currently at Sundance. We have our Sundance show that's going to feature actors and filmmakers. So we're excited to have Trevina on to talk about To Live and Die and Live. Thank you, Trevina, for coming on the Black Girl Nerds podcast. Yes, thank you so much for having me again. I'm actually so excited to be talking with you today. (laughs) (laughs) We're excited to have you. So yes, as I stated, the last time we chatted with you here, Black Girl Nerds, you discussed the intersection of your identity as a Black Muslim woman and a self-declared nerd (laughs) as you finished (laughs) up your role in the major comic book series, Ms. Marvel on Disney+. Plus. So what has it been like for you as an official alumni of the Marvel Cinematic Universe? Wow, that um, is a really good question. It it still doesn't all the way feel real. I actually get surprised by it. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, I know like it's been, oh my gosh, eight months or something since the series came out and I'm, I'm still uh, processing. I actually, um, when I got to Salt Lake City at the airport, people... <laughs> Some people stopped me and they're like, are you Trevina Springer? And asked me to sign some Miss Marvel stuff. And I was like, (laughs) and it still took, it's taking me by surprise still. So it's still sinking in that I'm an alum in it, but it it feels really great and exciting again, to be a part of a project that's just so special and then feels very close to home. Now, I don't know if you can tell us this information, but have you gotten any word yet if you'll be around for season two of Ms. Marvel? That is an excellent question. Um, I don't know anything yet, and I would love to be around for a second season. I think that it feels like the direction things would go, but who knows with this? Right. (laughs) And also, if I knew, I couldn't tell you anyway. Right, right. (laughs) I I figured you guys are under some kind of NDA, but you know, I'm, I'm a journalist. (laughs) I have to ask. Of course, please. (laughs) So you are in the film to live and die and live and you play Raina, a black Muslim woman who's dealing with a recent family crisis. How mm-hmm. important is it for you to give visibility to Black female characters who practice Islam? I think it's really important. Uh, you know, I think there's just a lot of erasure of the Black American Muslim experience. So to be able to, again, portray another uh, Black American Muslim woman who is, I think, a lot different than uh, Taisha, who I played in Miss Marvel. Mm-hmm. And to show that they're like, you know, there's just a range of experiences in the Black American experience. You know, it, it's so vast. 
So I think it's just important to provide representation for people to feel seen in media and to tell stories that different people can relate to. And again, and you don't have to be Muslim or black to relate to a story about family, about tragedy, about grief and um, having to rely on, on your people. I think that's land of a universal story. So I think it's just, yeah, very important. And, and let's dig into that a little bit. You said she's different mm-hmm. from the character that you played in, in Ms. Marvel. How is Raina different in that way? Um, I think Raina is a lot more serious than Taisha. And Raina, she has like older sister energy and she like really is not here for Muhammad and his mess. Like she's not impressed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she's <keeps it> real <laughs> and um I think that yeah she's probably a lot more uptight and um yeah just she probably takes life a little bit more seriously than Taisha who is a lot more pra- playful and free I think and um and yeah, I'm also, yeah, she just tells it like it is. <laughs> Irena was very fun to play. Did you have any, were there any kind of parallels between your personality and um, and Raina when you read for this role? Uh, I think maybe one of the big things is that I'm also like, I, I am a, an older sister. And so I probably brought some of that, like the one having to, um maybe make decisions or or have I like feel like some sort of authority even though Muhammad was acting like the leader and taking charge of a lot of things um I think that it was also play it was fun playing someone that also like she's a like Raina's a lot more serious than I am I think so it was fun doing that like playing someone I think who contrasts with me that way but I think if if anything that I did bring was like my my natural um comedic essence (laughs) I think like I was a bit snarky a bit with my family and I think that was really fun to play with a family dynamic and just cut through the bs and uh keep it real like uh in the scene where we were talking about Muhammad's film yeah yeah and I, I just absolutely loved Amin Joseph's performance. I thought he did an incredible job as Muhammad. Oh yes, that was he was so good. I, I described him in my review like a walking grenade. I just felt like his yes. character was on edge. Just I saw that. It absolutely his character was like you were just waiting to see what happened. And yeah. it was a lot. It was stressful. <laughs> but <laughs> It was really, really so amazing working with Eamon. He is extremely talented. It was great to see how vulnerable he was able to be. And um, getting to play with actors who are that good just encourages you to step it up and makes it safe to play and take risks as well in your choices. So that was, that was just a treat, you know, like that was the first time working with him and it felt as if we had known each other for years actually. and i completely slaughtered his name amen thank you for 
yeah. saying his name yeah. the right way. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, so do you feel that over the years, uh, Black American Muslim women have been misrepresented in cinema? Yeah, I think so. I think Black American Muslim women have been re- misrepresented, misrepresented, one, because they're usually not represented. Mm, <laughs> facts. Like as if they don't, yeah, like they don't exist. And we're out here, we've been here. Um, and I think that sometimes when Muslim women are represented, they're meek or docile or something, you know, and a lot of the women that I know in my life, they're strong and opinionated they're leaders, they're powerful, they're business owners, they're artists, they're all sorts of things. And I I think what's sad is there's often this portrayal of like this, you know, flat one dimensional woman, she's in a veil, and this is her, she's suffering. And so to see like, even in this film, you have a Muslim family and Muslim women, three, that are all different. Mm. even in the way that they veil it's different the way that they carry themselves or communicate and um yeah Raina doesn't hold her tongue and I think there's often representation of um, Muslim women that don't have the freedom to say what's on their mind right and um, I think I think you know Qasem our director is you know he's a uh a Muslim man, black Muslim man in a family with Muslim women. And I think that it was important for him because that's also his story and his, his experience to portray a black Muslim family like this, like any other family. We're just, (laughs) you know, um, being honest with each other and playful and loving and tender and, trying to deal with this traumatic event together he's so good at writing and creating these stories around interpersonal relationships because i remember Mm -hmm. his film that was at sundance a boy a girl a a dream and that was Mm -hmm. absolutely brilliant uh so uh, he's very skilled in that way as a filmmaker yeah Yeah. he is and he's just Oh, just to like work with him. It actually been a, it's been a dream to work with Gotham and for years. So when he called me up and asked me to come do this film, I was like, absolutely. Um, <laughs> uh, he's such a great director and cinematographer. I mean, it's just the film is just visually stunning. Oh yeah. And um, he just makes it safe to perform and be honest and take risks, and and he trusts his actors to make really fun choices in the moment so um yeah I think that was just a get I'm just so I'm just so thrilled and honored to be able to work with him to say like to write that down I mean it was on the vision board so um, (laughs) I'm ecstatic with that mission accomplished with that one that's awesome um how important (laughs) are the choices and decisions that Raina make in this story and does it somehow inform Muhammad in his decisions? Um, I think Muhammad is going to do what it is that he wants to do or what, like, I think while he's dealing with, um, I mean, he's not, he's under the influence for most of the film, you know? Yeah. And I think that's just clouding his judgment and his choices. So I think that 
I think Muhammad cares about my opinion as uh, a sibling, but I, I, I think that, you know, I think Iman maybe works better at like making an impact on him. If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I think I do my best to maybe show my disapproval. <laughs> 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 and I think, you know, I might influence him to try to want to be better, do better. But um, I kind of feel like until he's ready, and I think it's like universal with other people, until they're ready to make a change and do things for themselves. Well, we um, get, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, 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 go ahead, go ahead. Well, we, we do get to see a moment of that in the film with Muhammad being taken into, um, I think, NA Narcotics Anonymous to a meeting. Um, mm-hmm. and, or maybe an AA, I don't know, yeah. one, one of those meetings and yeah, and, <laughs> yeah. And then one of the, 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 um, the sponsors there was like, well, if he's not ready, you know, this is not how it works with, mm-hmm. with the sister trying to tell, kind of force him to tell his story. And they're like that, that's oh, not how it works. He's got to do right. that himself. Yeah. I think, yeah. Yeah. And I think a lot of people probably think it works like that and, Often, from what I understand, you know, it's really hard for people who have uh, family members who are struggling with addiction because it affects everyone around. It's not like a individual, it's like a family disease. And I think wanting so desperately for someone to get help, get healed and get on a better path, it's hard to watch someone suffer, but truly they won't make a change until they're ready to do it. And I think... Mm-hmm. Um, it's probably most helpful just to be supportive and, yeah, and be there for someone, you know, and then in the end, it's love that helps push them over the edge, I think. Kind of expanding on this conversation with to live and die and live, you know, this film deals with loss, pain, mm-hmm. and addiction. What lessons do you think this film's story is trying to teach us? Hmm. I think one lesson is if you don't uh, process and deal with your feelings, your emotions with grief, um, it can consume you. It can manifest in different ways. In some people, it will be addiction. And I think that another lesson is that it is not fair to have the expectation of um men, masculine people, black men to have to avoid their feelings and to hold up and act as if they um, need to be the barrier or they need to be the strong one. I think that's unfair. I think everyone should be allowed to uh, mourn. Everyone should be allowed to express grief and be soft and vulnerable. And I think that uh, the societal pressure put on black men to show up in the world one way. It's just, it's unfair. The patriarchy serves no one. And um, I think, yeah, it, it's just like really important for people to be able to feel. And if you don't, it can really, it can explode or it will turn into something because it's going to come out some way. And um, And also just the universal thing that we all struggle with things. And yeah. no matter what our cultural, religious background is, um, 
we all are struggling and suffering with something. And I think that it's, it's possible, even when things seem really dark, for there to be relief or light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah. Oh, that's so well said. And uh, <laughs> I, I, I absolutely love that. And I, and I really hope that, you know, that message resonates with so many people. And I, another question I wanted to ask in relation mm-hmm. to like mental health and, and black men in particularly, do you feel as if now that we're having more conversations around it, that we're normalizing therapy, that mental health is slowly no longer becoming a stigma in the black community? Yeah, um, I think that we're slowly doing that. I would like it to move a little bit faster, but I do believe having yeah. the conversation, I mean, those conversations are being had at least in some of my spaces um, a lot more frequently and it feels a lot less taboo. And I mean, I still think we have a long way to go, not only with the stigma of admitting that you're struggling and seeking out resources and help, but having access to it. I mean, that's just because of systemic racism and because so many different reasons and all sorts of form of oppression, people don't even have access to um, mental health care or any sort of resources. And I think the people who need it most are the most marginalized and most oppressed people. And I mean, like that would be a really nice form of reparations if people could Mm. have access to that you know what I mean like it's even scientifically proven that racism and living with that I mean it affects you and it affects your DNA post-traumatic stress and all that stuff is genetically passed down so I think that these conversations are important and I think that we are making strides and I think that's the beautiful thing with art is that we can bring this conversation to the forefront but I mean, the other part of it is not just like, let's not stigmatize it, but also let's make access, like it's accessible. So some guy growing up in Detroit, having a hard time making ends meet can talk to someone if they need to, and they don't have to go through a bunch of red tape or have a job to have health insurance, to have a co-payment <laughs> to talk to someone. Reach. I mean, I, I don't want, I don't want to get too political and too radical with my opinions, but if we could subsidize the whole thing and make it free for everybody, that's where, yeah, I don't understand why medical expenses have to be paid for, but yeah, then we may not have so much addiction. We may not have as much violence. Like right. if, if men were able to, or people were able to get some help, they wouldn't have to resort to a lot of these things. And exactly. I think, you know, a lot of people that I talked to after the film said, yes, I felt that way. Like when I lost a parent, I had to hold it all together and I didn't feel like I could break apart. Mm. And I think that's not fair. I was saying, you know, just as a woman, I feel like I have the space to break apart. That's the expectation that I'm going to fall apart. And I think, um, I mean, yeah, it just, <laughs> it's just all the things. I think we should all have the freedom to have access to the our range of emotions yes. and experiences and expression and I mean we aren't free until we all are free <laughs> preach that's a word <laughs> that is a word yes exactly yeah. exactly well my my last question for you is you know you've obviously had an obvious obviously you have <laughs> had a really great career with coming out of Ms. Marvel and this 
brilliant film. What kind of roles are most important for you as an actor? And what genre are you interested in exploring at this time? Mm. I think the most important roles as an actor uh, for me right now are, oh, I think stories that are being really authentically written and told, I think like things that we haven't seen. I would love to continue to be on, I've just been so lucky to be um, on projects just like diverse um, cast, crew, storytellers. And I think to be on sets where I'm not the only one would be, I think that's really important to me. Like I would love to hear more um, just black stories, black queer stories, um, maybe like romantic comedies. Uh, I think, oh my gosh, like a black queer disabled story. Mm. Yeah. You know, like um, that would be a fun rom-com, right? Absolutely. I think, um, yeah, just like things that we haven't seen and hearing getting other people to the front of the line is what I'd like to do. Things that are creatively fulfilling and maybe where I get to take risks and that push me and make me a little uncomfortable. Actually, this film even was one of those things. I was a little uncomfortable and I'm so grateful that um, I was able to do it and push past the fear and the discomfort because growth is on the other side of that. So I would um, just like to do more roles that stretch me and mm -hmm allow me to just tap into um, shared experiences. I want people to feel seen. And I think that's what's really important. A lot of us watch TV looking for things that kind of feel familiar. And it's just comforting when you're like, oh, that feels like me. Or mm -hmm. I know someone like that. I know that story. Oh my God, her hair looks like mine. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know? <laughs> my edges do that. You know? <laughs> Exactly. And you'll be surprised. You'll be surprised too what people that are outside of that marginalized group will feel attracted to. For example, I don't know if I'm using the right word, but like with Black Girl Nerds, there's a lot of people that aren't Black, aren't female, that really like what we represent because they're like, I've never seen it from that perspective. I've never looked yes. at it through that lens. And seeing those kinds of diverse stories, um, people want to see that too, because it's like refreshing for them. Yes. So that that's also another component of it. Not only us as Black people and Black women and Black queer women wanting to see ourselves reflected, but also just being able to know that there are other people that are interested in these intersecting identities because it's yes. it's something that they haven't seen. Yeah. They haven't. Absolutely. To be able to see the intersective identities and have a different POV because yes, um, I would love to, I love watching East Asian stories, you know, and being like, oh, that's a different perspective because usually when a white person writes a story, they write it like this and this is told from their point of view, you know, and I think um, it just gets to expand your worldview and experience. And I think we, all of us absolutely win when we get to tell our own stories and then we share it because again, we're all connected. So there's, there are avenues for all, 
there are avenues for us to resonate and connect with other people's stories. Absolutely. Well, I really look forward to more Sundance attendees connecting with your story with to live and die and live and fingers crossed that the movie gets a buyer (laughs) and then it'll get to a wide audience because more, I, I really want a lot of people to see it. It's, it's such a beautiful story. And, you know, as you beautifully articulated about, you know, addiction and pent up emotions and sort of this results of that, um, is kind of reflected in this story and, um, it's an important lesson to be learned. So. Yeah, I think so too. So I hope so too. It's beautiful. Everybody was so wonderful to work with. <laughs> dream. Detroit was gorgeous. They made the city look beautiful. Like another thing, Detroit, people talk about Detroit and it was another character in this film. It's so stunning. So Absolutely. I, I, and I remember, you know, reading the press notes um, that um, Kasim said that this was sort of like his love letter to Detroit. Yeah. So I thought that that was, I thought that that was very poignant. So yeah. yeah, beautiful film, beautiful film. Well, Trevina, please do not be a stranger. It, it was such a pleasure speaking with you. I always enjoy just seeing you on the screen and um, I hope to be able to talk to you again. Me too. Such a pleasure. Thank you so much. Oh, thanks for taking the time to talk to Black Girl Nerds. And you have a wonderful day and enjoy the rest of your festival. Thank you. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful day. Okay. Bye. Talk to you later. Bye. The Black Girl Nerds podcast is produced by Jamie Broadnax. The opening theme song to our show is written and performed by Samus. Various instrumentals are performed by Samus, Sky Blue, and Shubzilla. You can find various episodes of the Black Girl Nerds podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Audioboom, Google Play Music, and Spotify. 